0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, why Sys provides no solutions, only new excuses, the new Australian smart card system is a total disaster, and why Google's URLs are so crazy. Plus a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 239 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration podcast. We stream this episode live on October 29th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Alan, I've got to draw attention to your shirt. I know I do this from time yes. to time, but that's a good one. Come on, Alan, show it, show it to the people at home. I cry because others are stupid, and it makes me sad. <laughs> that's a good shirt, Alan. <laughs> it's it's big bang there. Yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. It's good. Yep. Uh, so uh, today we start with something that's got me really fired up, the Cyber Information Sharing Act, or CISA. And uh, that's where we begin our rather large show today. Mm -hmm.
1: So on Tuesday afternoon, the Senate voted 74 to 21 to pass a version of the CISA that we've been, you know, they've changed the name a couple of times, but we've been trying to kill this thing for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. Uh, That Roughly mirrors legislation passed in the House earlier this year, paving the way for a more combined version of the security bill to actually become a law at some point. Uh, The... Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act is designed to stem the rising tide of corporate data breaches by allowing companies to share cybersecurity threat data with the Department of Homeland Security who would then pass it on to other agencies like the FBI and the NSA. So my first question is, how does companies sharing corporate data stop data breaches?
0: That's my first question as well. How does it, Alan? How does that at all?
1: Like, I could understand if one company gets breached and they managed to keep it a secret, right? It's not the customer data doesn't get out there, but it's just like a advanced, you know, Chinese government hacked into us or something. Sure, giving that to Department of Homeland Security so they can take it to the FBI and then we, an advisory goes out telling all businesses, "Hey, watch out, bad guys are doing this thing." Right? Like, you know, we saw the one about the um, cash registers getting hacked after Target. Right. Right? And it said, "Hey companies, check on your cash registers, make sure right. That kind of thing? That makes sense but i don't see like it, it doesn't really define what data they're sharing like to prevent a data breach this company is going to just give all their customer data to the NSA it's like
0: well then the NSA gets hacked and here's it, here's how you know here's how you know this doesn't make any sense is there is already a program very much like CISA, already in place already run by the department of homeland security it's called the it's 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 a system that's already existing it's it's all on for information sharing between companies uh, and uh, in fact, there has been a study of sixty-eight thousand recent cyber attacks. Uh, from the research at the, uh, I think it's the Mercatus. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. M E R C A T S Mercatus Center. Anyways, they did a study of over sixty-eight thousand attacks uh, and incidents last year, and they say they tracked none of them back to information sharing as a cause or prevent or or, 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 or would have prevented it. Out of yes, the 68,000 well, they looked at, none of them would have been... Imp- it depends
1: what 68,000, you know, if you, if you think every phishing email is a cyber attack then yes, information sharing is not going to help so much with that one other than sometimes you know, the FBI puts out an advisor, it's like hey, they're sending out this thing that's a fake invitation to a conference for aerospace. Right? But mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it, I really don't see how the information sharing, you know, Facebook's program where companies share signatures on actual attacks kind of might actually prevent a third place from getting hit with one of these attacks. Right. But it doesn't really help the first or second place.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very much.
1: Um but yes, like most of these data breaches are not advanced persistent threats that require information sharing. It's install the bloody patches. <laughs> or you know, don't have SQL injection vulnerabilities in your web app and then you won't get breached, right? So no amount of information sharing other than repeating things they've already been told is really going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, the version that got passed on Tuesday spells out that uh, uh, any broadly defined cybersecurity threat information gathered can be shared notwithstanding any other provisions of law. So if it's illegal for companies to share certain information, this bill makes it not illegal.
0: That's nice and tidy, isn't it?
1: Yeah. You know, privacy advocates and civil liberties groups say CISA is a free pass that allows companies to monitor users and share their information with the government without a warrant, uh, while offering a backdoor that circumvents any laws that protect users' privacy.
0: And it also offer, it indemnifies them along the way too.
1: Yeah, so it, it definitely like companies mostly don't have an interest in monitoring their customers more than what they're already doing for marketing reasons or whatever. But this basically allows the government to be like, "Hey, we want all your data."
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: And meanwhile, it has nothing to do with cybersecurity. Uh, critics of CISO say the devil is in the details, or rather, in the raft of amendments that might get added to the bill before it actually passes. The Center for Democracy and Technology, a nonprofit technology group in Washington, D.C., has published a comprehensive breakdown of the proposed amendments and their potential impacts. So you should go check that out if you're especially interested in it. Uh, The CDT says, despite some changes made to assuage privacy concerns, neither CISA as written nor any other proposed amendments address the fundamental weakness of the legislation. According to the CDT, the bill requires that any internet user information volunteered by a company to the Department of Homeland Security for cybersecurity purposes be shared immediately with the NSA. Other elements of the intelligence community and the FBI and Department of Justice and many other federal agencies a requirement that will discourage company participation in the voluntary information sharing scheme envisioned in the bill. Or worse, what's the first thing we know about keeping information secret? Hmm. Don't share it with more people than necessary. That's true. And the law mandates that once you give it to the Department of Homeland Security, they don't get to decide who should get it. They should give it to everybody.
0: In fact, uh, the law also states that any employee of the federal government can have access to the data, even contractors, Alan. Contractors are allowed access to the data.
1: So, you know, uh, 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 the next, you know, um, I don't know. I I couldn't think of a uh, funny pun on Edward Snowden. Uh, But the next guy who works at Booz Allen Hamilton and decides to run off with a bunch of data uh, might not be so, you know, philanthropistical as as Edward Snowden and decide to, you know, sell it for money.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the sharing between divisions is concerning for me because the threshold of what triggers the companies to share is really low. And then once that information gets shared, it can be distributed throughout the federal government to any agencies between, I mean, the NSA is the example they give, but also and, the and, IRS or anybody else.
1: And they say at the moment that it's voluntary for the companies. But as we've seen with Yahoo and Google and so on, at some point the NSA will just go over and be like, "No, it's not voluntary. If you don't give us the money, we're going to want two hundred thousand dollars a day until you do." Right. A- and and all of a sudden they will be voluntarily giving up all their customer data, and it's, the NSA gets it all.
0: It's been interesting because a lot of people seem to be stopping at information sharing. I've heard I've heard analysis on on air from other people that are like, "Well, you know, sharing information is good," and that seems to be where the thought stops.
1: Right, but this law is about allowing things that would normally be illegal, basically. it's like sharing information about what attacks are happening against you is not illegal. Right. So we don't need a law that says it's legal to share the information.
0: Right. Mm Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the current bill that's going through the system right now originated in the Senate Select Intelligence Committee by Dianne Feinstein and Burr. They are representatives of the Intelligence Committee. They are the biggest yeah, apologists exactly. for the Intelligence Committee. This is <laughs> this an isn't Intelligence Committee from bill
1: from the Commerce people. No, nope. it's uh, but the Commerce people we proved last week don't know what they're doing because they're trying to ban us from researching hacking cars.
0: Right, right. But it's just if you just look at where the bill originated from, it pretty much tells you everything you need to know right there.
1: Exactly. Uh, it, you know, if there were an easier way, we were told that companies to share so-called indicators of compromise. Well, we have those. It's called the internet. Yeah, we use it all the time. Yeah, you know, Facebook. The companies have self-organized their own things for this. You know, the government wanted. You know, we've had CERT, right? I mean, that's the, the com- Computer Emergency Response Team. It's every country has one. You find a bug, you tell them about it, and they tell everybody else about it, and it's right. all coordinated. That would be disclosure. called information sharing. Yes, we've had that since the 90s. You know, when Kaspersky finds a thing, they publish a big PDF, and at the bottom, like, eight pages are all these indicators of compromise. These
0: people just need to watch more TechSnap.
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, and then Krebs weighs in and says, the biggest impediment to detecting and responding to breaches is a more t- in a more timely manner comes from the fundamental... Lack of appreciation for the fact of actually doing it, mm-hmm. and so a law that allows information sharing isn't going to help because the law is not about information sharing. So, uh, the most frustrating aspect of the legislation approach uh, to fixing this problem is it may virtually impossible to measure whether a bill like CISA in fact ever leads to any more oh, right. information sharing happening, exactly. or any fewer data breaches happening. Uh, rather than encouraging companies to share their own cybersecurity standards, uh, the professionals say uh, CISA ignores the. Goal and offloads responsibility to a generalized public-private-secret information-sharing network, which isn't going to stop any compromises.
0: No, it's not going to help anything. That's what's kind nope. of the bummer thing about it. Is it's there. Is it
1: only ever going to make things worse? Either there's going to be some big database out there with all the information from all the companies put together ready for me to steal, or it's just all going to end up in the NSA's database and it's not going to stop a single attack.
0: And companies will feel less compelled to shore up their networks when they know that, hey, you know, I'm doing it. I'm doing the sharing with the federal government, I'm indemnified. This is our cyber approach is this participating in this information sharing. It's just not going to solve anything at all. And in fact, oh, in some yes. cases, going to give companies excuses to be even more negligent than they are today. Yep. Some kind of brilliance. That's what that is, Alan. That's some kind of mm-hmm. brilliance. You got to really give it to them, though, for really making sure they can figure out a way to mess it up. Really? It's, it's really, it's really, it's really impressive. It's anything else on that story?
1: Uh, no, that's about it for
0: that one. All right, I'll tell you about something that is truly impressive. IX Systems, IXSystems.com/slash-techsnap. Go get yourself that white paper. IX Systems is a great, great so- software and hardware provider. They can do systems that you've only dreamed of, and they also have systems available and very approachable to small businesses. They make sure that the people that build these systems know exactly what they're doing, and when you call in to get advice, they know exactly how to help you. Even the sales experience is a lot different. It's a, it's a step above everybody else, and because of that, they have had a lot of customers over the years who have some really awesome some stories and so iX systems has launched the mission complete campaign hashtag mission complete
2: hi I'm Brett Davis with iX systems we don't look at our clients as just customers with projects and budgets but rather engineers on technical missions each with unique goals and challenges we've been building enterprise storage and server systems for nearly 20 years and we're continuously amazed at the creative ways that people solve problems using our systems Nearly every day we see someone doing something brilliant with one of our technologies, be it FreeBSD, FreeNAS, TrueNAS, PCBSD, or OpenZFS. We've been so inspired by these people that we've decided to launch a campaign that we're calling Mission Complete. The purpose of this campaign is to give you the opportunity to share your stories with us about how you've completed various missions using IX System servers and storage or using technologies like FreeNAS or OpenZFS to save the day. As a way of saying thank you, we'll be giving away monthly prizes for the best stories we receive. All right. So take a minute and tell us how you've completed your missions at ixsystems.com forward slash mission complete. Or tweet us at ixsystems with the hashtag mission complete. We're looking forward to hearing your stories. And best of luck to you on your next mission.
0: My first real exposure to IX Systems was actually at some of the fests and the community events mm-hmm. because their their employees are part of the community, but also they're plugged into all of the stuff that's going on. And uh, I guess they were just down, Michael Dexter was down at Seagull this uh, past week, and he got some great photos that you can find out online. IX Systems is really plugged in, and that's a cool campaign. Hashtag mission complete if you do it on Twitter, or you can find the submission form at ixsystems.com slash mission complete. I bet there's a few members out in the audience mm-hmm. that would qualify for that.
1: I'm looking forward to reading those stories. Those yeah. should be good ones. That'd be really cool. And it reminds me of the uh, the old war stories we used to do on TechSnap.
0: Right. iXsystems.com slash mission complete. Go turn your war story into a story. And you know what? Maybe we'll get to... How cool would it be to have a TechSnap audience member <laughs> win that? That would be mm-hmm. awesome. All right, Alan. So that moves us to our next story. Uh, uh, when I saw this story, I thought it said Plaid Crypto. And I was all down for Plaid Crypto. I'm ready. That sounds like, that sounds like fashionable. I'm ready to go. But uh, mm-hmm. that's not it.
1: Well, it is called pa- Plaid Yeah, uh, <laughs> But
0: is it is it actually about a plaid shirt, Alan? Because that's what yeah. I want. Oh, uh, okay. Plaid in this case stands <laughs>
1: for the Protocol for Lightweight Authentication of ID.
0: Okay, not quite the same thing.
1: So it's the new Australian standard for an unbreakable smart card identification protocol. Uh, basically, you'd have this smart card and it would prove you are you and it wouldn't be fakeable and, and it would be all secure and private and awesome. Sounds perfect. Uh, and it got kind of rammed through the process and and got ISO certified on a fast track and and no one ever actually got to study it properly first. Mm. And so a paper, a scientific paper has come out analyzing the protocol and found it to be horrible.
0: Womp womp.
1: <laughs> Who would have guessed something the government did and a rushed through without You know, letting people comment on it and and actually investigate it first uh, was horrible. So uh, there's this paper that's been published called uh, Unpicking Plaid, a cryptographic analysis of the ISO standard track authentication protocol. But basically, uh, it says, technically, the protocol is a disaster. In addition to many questionable (laughs) design choices, we found ways to trace user identities and recover card access capabilities. So basically the smart card has a bunch of public keys on it, one for each different capability that you might have, like access to the healthcare in Australia or access to a building or driver's license, all the different possible things that you could be allowed to do or whatever. Um, And so basically in the paper they found, A, they could track a person even though you're not supposed to be able to by their accessing the card in different places, and they could figure out what things are allowed by your card even though they're not supposed to be able to. Mm. Uh, the attacks are very efficient Only takes a few seconds on home hardware uh, To guess it And involve some funny techniques Such as uh, RSA modulus uh, fingerprinting And German tanks Which I'll get to explain what? in a What? Okay, yes. okay uh, So there's a uh, Matt Green wrote a blog post about it That explains it a little more readably Than what you would get in the scientific paper okay. But all the details are in the scientific paper If you want uh, so, I have a link to the paper here, but uh, basically it says, uh, when a reader queries a card, the reader initiate, uh, initially transmit a set of capabilities that it will support, like hospital or bank or social security center, or in the one example on the blog, alligator wrestling.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: So, if the plaid card has been provisioned with a matching public key for any of those capabilities, it goes ahead and uses that and authenticates the device. However, if no matching key is found, right? So if if your card doesn't have a bank public key on it, uh, instead it fakes a response with encrypting by encrypting junk under a special dummy RSA public key called a shill key that's stored on the card. And the idea there is that way the card reader couldn't tell what things are on your card, right? So if it's you know a, a card reader at the hospital, it can't ask, hey, does your card support bank? And your card would say. Yes, and give you the key or say or give an error instead. Uh so it always returns a fingerprint so that the person asking can't ever tell whether that was real or not. Right? So it seems like, oh, that seems like a good approach, right? Yeah. Always return some junk so that and and only the right person can tell whether the encrypted thing is junk or real. But actually therein lies the problem. You see, the shill key is unique for each card rather than Uh, Because if they were the same across all the cards, then it would be easy to identify it as the fake key.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Which presents a completely new avenue of tracking individual cards. Uh If an attacker can induce an error and subsequently fingerprint the resulting ciphertext, that is, figure out which shield key was used to encipher it, they can potentially identify the card the next time you encounter it. So, basically, by having a card reader in a couple places or something and doing different requests... Uh, eventually, they could find out that hey, that is like this specific person's card. They won't necessarily mm. know who it is, but
0: they've identified. Like, the I've card. seen
1: this card before at this other place, and so all of a sudden, it's now I can track individual people and where they are going
0: mm-hmm, with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then they have the details. So, to distinguish the RSA moduli of two different cards, the researchers employ an old solution to a problem called the German tank problem. Uh, so, this actually comes from World War II. As the name implies, this is a real statistical problem that the Allies ran into during World War II. The problem can be described as follows. Imagine that a factory is producing tanks, German tanks in this case, where each tank is printed with a sequential serial number in an order sequence, right? There's like tank 1, tank 2, tank 3, tank 100, tank 1,000, etc. Sure. Uh, Through the battlefield captures, you have managed to obtain a small or presumably random number of tanks right, in different actions you've managed to capture or at least record the serial numbers of a bunch of different tanks. From the recovered serial numbers, it is now your job to estimate N, which is the total number of tanks produced by the factory. So, you know, just by looking at the random serial numbers you've seen, you can try to guess how many tanks the Germans have made. Okay. Mostly, that's just, you know, take the highest number you've seen and how many there are and then kind of assume that maybe it's a little bit higher, but... Basically, yeah, you can figure out exactly, or not exactly, approximately how many uh, tanks the German factory might be
0: producing. Right.
1: Or, you know, on this day, the highest number we saw was this, and on this day, the highest number we saw was this, so in, the, in between those two dates, they probably produced about this many tanks. Uh, but, you know, the story behind the plaid standardization is possibly even more disturbing than how bad the protocol is. You know, Plaid was pushed into the ISO uh, standard in the fast-track procedure. Uh, technical loopholes made it possible uh-huh. to cut off uh, any discussion within the ISO groups responsible for crypto and security analysis. Uh, concerns from tech-savvy experts and other national panels were dismissed or ignored completely. Uh, the authors of this post uh, contacted ISO and the Computer Emergency Response Team of Australia yeah. before going public with our paper, uh, but we got a questionable and somewhat erate Uh, response and they have a link to the PDF they got back uh, by the Plaid Project's editors and then they show the response they sent back to that reply. Mm. Uh, Despite every possible evidence of bad design Plaid is now approved as an ISO standard and is coming to you very soon inside security products which will advertise non-existent privacy capabilities. Mm. Right? They'll be like oh with this card people won't be able to tell who you are or track you and it turns out yes they will. Uh, the detailed story of Plaid is in the paper, is worth a read, and casts many doubts on the efficacy of the most important standardizing body in the world, right? What's the point of this ISO standard if a government can just decide they want to push something through and get yeah. it through anyway? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's interesting to see how cryptography products can be approved by ISO without understanding any of the real uh, security concerns or actually, cons- you know, when an algorithm like AES or SHA-3 or whatever goes up to be, uh, become the new standard, we take a whole bunch of different competing standards, and we have a contest, we have years of people pounding on it and doing papers on trying to break it, all that. And whereas when ISO is going to approve a cryptography standard, it's just a rubber stamp instead of actually you know people investigating it, people trying to prove it that it's wrong, and you know the regular scientific process that we would get. There right. was basically no peer review even on this. It was crazy.
0: It was just pushed through for political reasons, I guess.
1: Yep. Uh, and then, so I have some extra links, including one from Bruce Schneier talking about how amateurs, it turns out, produce amateur cryptography.
0: Surprise. <laughs> in, you know, in particular,
1: with these cards, they're like, oh, we don't want people to be able to track you, so we're going to design this system. And it's like, well, that sounds pretty good. And then it's like, oh. Now that I think about it, it turns out you've actually made it worse. You've made them more
0: trackable rather than less. Right. Surprise. It's like, Whoops! <laughs> is it? I don't know. Ah, uh, so uh, it is a cool name, but not such a cool implementation.
1: Well, it's a pretty lame name actually, but yes.
0: <laughs> well, here in the Pacific Northwest, plaid is really cool, Alan. It's super cool. I mean, hipster.
1: No, no, no,
0: no. Well, no, we we were grunge way before hipster was even a thing. Come on now,
1: give me some credit.
0: All right. Well, any other thoughts on that here, story?
1: You don't You don't want to hear what people wear plaid shirts over here. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, so, I, I like that. I like that story, Alan. That's very interesting. Yes. And I was wondering what the tie-in with the tanks was. Uh, they have yeah. in the uh, Wikipedia article you link, they have how many tanks they estimated, how many tanks they actually produced, and what the intelligence agencies thought they were producing. And the uh, estimation was really close. The intelligence agencies was way off, way off.
1: Yes. Way under or way over? Way over. Well, yeah. Of course, you always see all oh, the enemy's big and scary. We need more money to fight them. Right? Yeah, it was we, like we need to send a bunch of people in with this sabotage manual.
0: It was like 146 so, tanks were produced. They they estimated uh, they estimated something around there, and the CIA or intelligence agencies estimated a <laughs> thousand. They were off well,
1: by well, it's because the CIA wanted a bunch of money to yeah. send people in with that sabotage manual to go and right. sabotage the factory.
0: Sabotage manual from last week, if you missed yeah.
1: it. Oh, it was last week. <clears throat> it's <clears throat> all blurring together on me. So I know,
0: I know. Well, any other thoughts on that story?
1: Nope, that was a good one, though.
0: All right, I'll tell you about the folks over at Ting, my mobile service provider now for a long time, over two years, I've saved over (laughs) $2,000. What? Yeah, $2,000 by switching to Ting, and you can too. They have a savings calculator. You can go plug in your current usage and see how much you would save. Here's why. Ting is mobile that makes sense. No contracts, no other termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. And they have an awesome dashboard. It starts at just $6 a month. You can choose from CDMA or GSM services. Hello, isn't that nice? And one of the things about their dashboard that I love a lot is you can also turn devices on and off, set limits, like something that's great if you have kids, set alert thresholds, name your devices. That way they have common names across all of the different ways to control. things. They have an app for your phone. They have a great log uh, da- dashboard that you can log into. Check them out right now by going to techsnap.ting.com. Please go over there and just give them a try. I think you might be really interested if you, if you do their savings calculator and plug your actual usage in there. And one of the things I really like about Ting, I, th- I think it's especially applicable to our audience, is you do get to choose between GSM or CDMA. And that is really nice if you just, if you just kind of have a better, better idea of what works in your area. And one of the things that Noah has been doing is he's been picking up uh, GSM SIM cards, kind of buy, buys them two, three at a time. They're $9. You go to techsnap.ting.com, you're going to get a $25 credit. So you can get a $9 SIM, and you'll get $25 worth of usage credit. So one of the things he's done is he's picked up a couple of different GSM hotspots off of eBay and he's plugged them in there and he says they work great feature phones another great way just giving new life to a smartphone that's been around for a little while or getting yourself something really new like the new nexus 6 and putting it on ting and then you have the pure google experience updates directly from the googs and you have it on a network with no contract and the phone is unlocked also check out the ting blog they're always doing new new and neat things over there like they're giving away a samsung galaxy grand prime right now on their blog it's a uh, and they do this from time to time, so it's worth checking out the Ting blog because they do these giveaways, some really nice phones. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Look, at look around what Ting does, see why they're different than other mobile source providers. Go into the how much would you save, and then find out all the cool things like hotspot and tethering is included with the phone. Of course, voicemail, picture messaging, all that stuff that you would expect, no hidden line items. You only pay for what you use, $6 for the line. Isn't that slick? And you just plug in your current usage and find out how much you would save. Techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. It's been my mobile service provider for a long time now, and I love it. TechSnap.ting.com. Thank you, Ting. Okay, so we were just talking about Bruce Schneier, and uh, he has an article up about something I have wondered a lot about, Google's crazy, crazy, unguessable URLs. Yep.
1: Uh, So, yeah, uh, this is a post off Bruce Schneier's blog talking about uh, how Google uses unguessable URLs to protect the photos that you post. Uh, And it... um, so this is originally a story that came up from the verge, uh, when somebody on Reddit had posted some photos privately into Google Photos mm-hmm. and realized that if they go and right-click on the photo and copy or, like the original URL and pasted it to somebody, or you know, in their case, they viewed it in like incognito mode, and they even tried like download it, doing it with Wget off a virtual machine or a, a VPS in a different country. That they can still access the photo. And they're like, hey, aren't yeah. these photos supposed to be private? It's like, well, unless you give someone the URL, it turns out they are private. Because the URL, the file name in the URL is uh, 40 random characters. Which gives it a complexity of about 10 to the power of 70 different possible combinations. Huh. Meaning it's probably stronger than your password.
0: So they, so, so those URLs are, uh, each, each picture has its own URL like that then? Yeah. Okay. And
1: it's, each one's unique. Uh, And so specifically, it means if I share one picture with you, you can't use that. There's no information there that would allow you then access any one of my other pictures. You'd only get the one I shared with you. And uh, Google says they don't actually create those URLs until you view it.
0: Ah, I was just wondering about
1: that. Okay. so Uh, But basically it means somebody couldn't guess the URLs and start viewing your other pictures.
0: That might also be be true for docs too then, right? Because the docs have crazy... Like our doc right now is, uh, well, yeah, but,
1: uh, with the, there's more access control in a doc, right? Because yes. You're actually running that application. Right. Whereas with the pictures, it's returning a raw JPEG file.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes
1: sense. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see how it works and the and I wonder if there's a reason why it's not just like a SHA five twelve or something, but I guess they want it to be more random than that, probably. Uh. Yeah, so if you look at uh, some of your photos in Google Photos and you right click on them and you can copy the source URL and that's a public URL. Anyone can access it, uh, you know, if you share it with them. Uh, the photos are available to anyone who types in the right string of characters. The key is that that string of characters is very long and even if they tried to guess every possible combination to find your photo, it, there's so many possible combinations they would never be able to find very many photos. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, why it's, you know, So there's a quote here from a Google engineer that says, so why is that public URL more secure than it looks? The short URL, uh, or the short answer, is that the URL is working as a password for each photo. Uh, Photo URLs are typically around 40 characters long, so if you wanted to scan all the possible combinations, you'd you'd have to work through 10 to the power of 70 different combinations to get the right one, a problem that's basically astronomical scale. Uh, There's enough combinations that it's considered unguessable and it's much harder to guess than your password. So if somebody really wants your photos, they'd be better off trying to guess your password mm-hmm. than the URL for each individual photo. No kidding. Because if they got your password, they would get every photo, not just the one. Yeah. But two-factor auth, problem solved. Uh, but the same applies to Facebook photos, right? If I have access to, say, one of Chris's photos, but it's not public, and I want to share it with someone, I can do that, even if the other person doesn't have a Facebook account, by getting the JPEG URL rather than the regular Facebook photo mm-hmm. URL. hmm uh, and then I can share that with them uh, because traffic to and from Google Photos, Facebook, and things like that is encrypted with HTTPS. It means that even if I'm sitting there on the wire or on the Wi-Fi sniffing, I won't see the photo, the names of the photos, right? Uh, and then I can't access them. So the only real problem is that it's hard to revoke access to a photo with this system, right? If you want to, you know, if I right. give this unguessable URL uh, to you you can then share it to anybody you want without me having any control. And if I, because I'm using a CDN and it's all cached and everything, mm-hmm. uh, even if I delete the photo off Google, the cached copy might still be there and that URL might still work if people already have the URL. But, you know, don't share it if you don't want it shared, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, Schneider notes, it's a perfectly valid security measure, although it's probably unsettling to some people, until, especially if they don't understand how it works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh I, I've looked at that and I've thought I've I, when I've seen those URLs, I've often thought this must be some sort of randomly generated private URL. And I did the same kind of experimentation. I did a private window and I tried to open it up over there. I did it on a different computer. And uh, I, I I guess it's a it seems to be a pretty good system out. I can't really jump out as long well, as they're I protecting they against
1: something different. Like on Gmail, when I was trying to do the same trick of giving that private URL to someone, the Gmail one didn't work. Oh, okay. Gmail ones are crazy. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, I can't really think of a major downside as long as they're protecting against ongoing scans, you know, people that are trying to figure out a way to, mm-hmm. I don't know, I mean, it seems like you could somehow just sort of let something run for a while and eventually it would collect pictures here and there. Right. Now and um, um,
1: uh I've, I've thought about this particular one before. You know, someone sent me a picture and I was like, huh, that's a good picture. Uh, I wonder if I can find any other pictures near there. Yeah, exactly. Uh but it was a like SHA two fifty six hash of the file content, not the file name, uh, and so it meant that, um, you know, the the search space was huge, right? Two hundred fifty two to the power of two hundred fifty six possible combinations. Uh, so even randomly guessing, I it wouldn't have been very likely to find any photos. Yeah. You know, even if even if there were a million photos out there, the chance of finding a second photo was pretty, pretty right. rare.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I'm really glad you cleared that up. Any other notes on that story?
1: Uh, no, just a, that one's been in my queue of when there's space in a text nap, we should cover this story yeah. since, since July.
0: Yeah, it's, well, it's very fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Very good. All right. Well, uh, let me tell you about DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a sponsor of the TechNet program, and I think it's a great solution for a lot of you that need some infrastructure. If you've thought about deploying something on a VM on your LAN, or if you thought about trying something, I want you to consider DigitalOcean, uh, because here's the nice thing. For $5 a month, it'd be pretty easy and straightforward just to use it for testing. But when you're ready to push the button, it'll absolutely run in production, too. A lot of really great systems run on DigitalOcean. We have a ton of Jupyter Broadcasting systems now running on DigitalOcean as well, And I think you'll find with our promo code, SnapOcean, and two two months to play with it. They'll, you'll find something you can use a DigitalOcean droplet for. SyncThing, OwnCloud, BitTorrent Sync, Minecraft, QuasalCore. These are all a couple of uses I use it for all the time. In fact, I made a I made a plug for QuasalCore recently. I think it was on Last, and I heard back from somebody. I think it was uh, Sean PC in the chat room who said he loves it. There's a lot of little things that you can use DigitalOcean for to make your life easier and better. And there's also a lot of ways you can use it to just produ- to uh, put something in production. They have different distributions you can choose from. They have one-click deployment of great applications, like tons of tons of great blogging software, the entire Nginx stack if you want, it, or the Apache stack. I mean, the list goes on and on. They have a lot of really good technology. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. So pick one close to you. So when I set up a new Sync thing, DigitalOcean Droplet, I picked one in San Francisco. Most of my traffic goes down to California anyways for pretty much everywhere I go. And so I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Put it right there in San Francisco since I'm going down there already. And one of the things that I always appreciate about DigitalOcean is their interface. You can get started in less than 55 seconds and their interface plays a huge part in that. You can get for $5 a month, 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And if you use the promo code SNAPOcean, that $10 credit means you could try it out two months for free. Go try out a free BSD rig or go try out a new Ubuntu rig, or a Fedora rig, or a Core OS machine. Wouldn't that be interesting? DigitalOcean, use the promo code SNAPOcean. A lot of really cool things you can do with that. I'm gonna be traveling soon, and uh, we use DigitalOcean to bounce things off of all of the time while I'm traveling. It is such a great tool, and that pricing structure, if you uh, check it out, if you go to DigitalOcean's website and scroll down, They talk about their straightforward pricing structure. One of the things I really love about it is hourly. So they have a really nice API that you can tie in with your existing management infrastructure, and you can scale up on-demand at DigitalOcean whenever you need to. Or if you just want to do some testing, this hourly pricing is nuts. And $10 a month is their most popular plan. You get a gigabyte of RAM, a CPU, 30 gigabytes of SSD, because they're all SSDs, and 2 terabytes of transfer. That is great. And then you combine that with some of the really, really good tutorials, like they uh, have one that uh, I'm going to recommend you go check out. How to set up multi-factor authentication for SSH on Ubuntu 14.04. Just make your droplets even more secure. They have really good tutorials, they have professional editors to edit all of this stuff, and they pay their community who contributes. DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Such a great service, so perfect yeah, for our audience. Um, Try it out. You know,
1: they they DigitalOcean was really originally really developer focused. It was, you know, set up a quick development environment and work on stuff. But now with the floating IP feature, you can actually build high availability production stuff on it. Uh, oh, and yeah, I think that was the last missing piece.
0: Yep. Yeah. They have are huge in the development community, but they're getting they're just growing all the time. It's really exciting to watch. So, Alan, uh, we pre-recorded, so normally I would plug the uh, BSD Now program right here. Episode 114, though, is edited and ready to go, or it's close to editing and ready to go. So find episode 114 of the BSD Now program, and I am probably going to be traveling while you're watching this or next week's episode, so find out my adventures at jupiterbroadcastingcom slash rover. You can follow the rover log for when I'm traveling or sometimes even when I'm not traveling and stay up to date on that. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. We're starting to thread on our subreddit at com. And John from Canada writes in with our first email. He says, The complicated free NAS box are combined with Linux. Hi, Alan and Chris. I'm a computer engineering student with a large interest in Linux, open source, and related technologies. I've been listening to Jupiter Broadcasting's podcast for about a year now, and I enjoy all of your shows. After listening to Alan talk about ZFS on the show, when. Uh, When I decided to build a home server, I knew that the only choice for file system was gonna be ZFS, so I decided to go with FreeNAS. I know FreeNAS is really meant to be a file server, but I also wanted to use it for other things. I'm building it for personal use, and I plan to use it mainly for backups and media. I also want to host an own cloud server, use Plex, and possibly run a mail server as well. I really like the idea of using a Plex, or I'm sorry, a FreeNAS server, however, I'm not sure how it will work with trying to run OwnCloud, Plex, and other things, other than plugins or jails, and I was wondering if you had any experience with this. Will FreeNAS work well enough for this? Or is it a bad idea trying to complicate my file server, and should I just leave files on it? I've considered the alternative of setting up Arch server somewhere else in my house, and just setting up OwnCloud on that, and just having to hook up to FreeNAS. I know Chris just recently did this, so I was curious to hear his opinions on the matter. In case you're interested in my build, here's my current setup. And he lists that he has a Western Digital 6 terabyte uh, hard drives in RAID Z2, uh, he also has eight gigabytes of Check. ECC RAM, sixteen gigabyte uh, SATA uh, boot well, device.
1: Learn to read, Chris. That that very clearly says thirty-two gigabytes of ECC RAM. What did
0: I say? Oh, four eight, eight, gigabytes? eight. It's yeah. four
1: eight gigabytes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh but And a uh, nice uh, super micro
1: uh, motherboard is the yep. important part. Super ECC micro ECC motherboard,
0: and also uh, it's all hooked up to a UPS.
1: Yes. Um, so FreeNAS has a plug-in system. Plex and OwnCloud are like the two most popular, so they will work very, very well. Mm -hmm. I happen to know that uh, Chris Moore uses his FreeNAS with an OwnCloud jail, and that's how he syncs his calendar to his phone as well. Nice. A bunch of other stuff. So yes, FreeNAS will work very well for that. Um, Things that aren't plugins are a little harder to do, but they're usually fairly doable. Uh, But Plex is like the most popular app on FreeNAS, so I definitely know that that'll work very nicely. Also, if you watch our interview last week on BSD Now, you will hear that in FreeNAS 10, which should enter beta a week from now, or less than a week from now, uh, they are going to have support for Beehive for running VMs on your FreeNAS. So you could put Arch in a Beehive and run that on top of your FreeNAS 10 if you're willing to run the beta.
0: That's not Um, bad, yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, So now that uh, FreeNAS is getting up to a version of FreeBSD that has Beehive, interesting things are coming. And uh, hopefully by the time we get around to Freenas 10.1 or whatever, it'll even have support for running Windows VMs now that that's landed in Beehive.
0: Um, and uh, so his question about, yeah, I've been using a front-end server that sits in front of Freenas, and that works really well too. It just depends mm-hmm. on, for me, I wanted to have a lot of applications that I updated all the time. So it just kind yeah. of depends on uh, yeah, it depends It's more, you it's more work. work. You
1: Ideally, you don't want to put too much stuff on the file server and just let it be the file server, but at the same time, uh, you know, you can only have so many machines in your house. And if it's for your house, then, you know, the reasons to keep them separate are fewer. And, you know, with a, you got a fairly beefy CPU there and lots of RAM, so you're fine to run your Plex and your own cloud and a couple other things off of FreeNAS. Yeah, I think so. It'll be fine.
0: Linux Don't Nick use Linux. writes <laughs> in. He says, hey, Chris and Alan, I'd love to hear your thoughts and recommendations and oh, see maybe if the community has a solution. I'm an IT person for a student healthcare center at one of the largest universities in the Northeast. We have hundreds of Lenovo Windows 7 enterprise desktops and laptops. As part of our efforts to be HIPAA compliant next year, we are encrypting all our machines. All of our new hardware comes with TPM chips that allow us to encrypt the machines without requiring a password or startup key, like a USB device to unlock it. To order boot. Unfortunately, some of our older hardware does not have this and requires startup keys. If we use BitLocker, our, our healthcare professionals and other related staff are not computer savvy, and none of them, uh, are, uh, not not one of them, are. So this solution needs to be as painless as possible. Our leading idea for machines without TPM would be to plug in a small flash drive into the back of each desktop, and then provide these to staff with laptops that need to travel. Some uh, with some sort of read-only file system and a startup key on them. Do you have any better ideas? Uh, if this seems like the most sensible option, is there anything I could do better? Thanks for the awesome show. Been listening since the beginning. Linux Nick.
1: No, depends on the type of key, but oftentimes, these, like, USB key wouldn't actually even have a file system on it. It would be a special thing. Uh, but yeah, a read only file system, ideally, that way, you know, it doesn't even, the key doesn't even show up once the OS is running. It's hard to say. Uh, but yes, you can get USB sticks that, like, stick out only, like, that far. They're very slim, because uh, you don't want to you know, if you end up with uh, a USB stick like this hanging out of the laptop, then it's just a lever in order to break the USB ports in the laptop or whatever, right? Uh, so yeah, uh, a tiny, tiny USB stick. Uh, you can even get ones that are like just the chip and they're only like paper thin and you can like gem in the port and it'd be impossible to even pull it out. It would just clog the port basically. Uh, and that way they could never lose them. Although it kind of makes you wonder about what's the purpose of encrypting the hard drive if the key is on this USB stick that is always in the laptop. So the laptop right. gets stolen, the key gets stolen and they have access to everything anyway.
0: What do you suppose the main advantage to encrypting the entire hard drive is too instead of just like a data partition? Uh, well, Cache it, files, it just, temp files, stuff like that?
1: There's, there's so many files that you never know what, mm-hmm. or you know, the user saves some sensitive information to their desktop and who knows where they might save it. Mm-hmm. Um, the real question with the TPM is like does the TPM do any good if you don't require a like a something stronger than a BIOS password to, to actually boot the machine to unlock the TPM. Right, yeah. Because then again, if the whole point of this type of a compliance is to protect information on the laptop if the laptop gets stolen, what's actually preventing people the I as a person who stole that laptop from accessing the sensitive information on it?
0: Charm is also saying that perhaps this is something YubiKey could help with. To Possibly, maybe input a passphrase.
1: The YubiKey is a little more oriented at power users mm-hmm. and the person who's actually using the laptop, uh, whereas they kind of want this to be out of the way.
0: Yeah, this is something that we also used to struggle with quite a lot. Uh, and uh, of course, if you're using BitLocker, just make sure you have uh, backup ways to get to their data when the user gets fired or their account gets deleted or disabled or whatever. Make yeah, sure the administrators...
1: That's the one advantage to something like the the older Windows encryption, like the individual directory yeah, encryption yeah, or whatever, yeah. was that you it would uh, all the data was encrypted to the user that owned it and to like one or two administrator accounts so that, uh, if the user forgot their password and it was reset, which made them unable to access the encrypted data, or if the, uh, user was fired or whatever, that somebody would still have uh, a key that could access those files. Right. That's why it's important to have more than one key.
0: TechSnap.reddit.com. If you have any recommendations, um, all right, Alan, you ready for Spaz EC's email? Sure. He was, he was eagle-eyed. He said, uh, I saw the double text up on the calendar, so I thought I should throw my question in. Ha-ha, <laughs> smart. Thank you. He says, I have FreeNAS minis that serves as my primary backup and Plex server, and I replicate the family photos and home movies uh, data share to another FreeNAS box in my basement. I would like to physically move that FreeNAS box in my basement to my mother-in-law's house to get it off-premises. My question is, once it's set to the other location, how do I connect the two As boxes together? My py- my firewall is a PFSense box, and theirs is from their ISP. And I'm sure I will have the... And, I, and I'm unsure if I will have the ability to access it. Thanks for all the great technical knowledge you impart every week. Spazzy C! Uh,
1: so for this one, uh, on the PFSense, you can set up a VPN server, and mm. then you could connect from the PFSense at your mother-in-law's house to your... Uh from the FreeNAS at your mother-in-law's house to the PF Sense at your house and uh, create and basically let it join your LAN and then it would just have a regular IP on your LAN and it'll all be fine except for it'll be slower than your LAN. Um I don't know how to set up an open VPN on the FreeNAS box. I don't know that much about FreeNAS because I, yeah, I, I don't used regular FreeBSD to do it myself. Uh, like with the plugin jails, I don't know if you'd actually be able to create the connection. Uh Ideally, you would be able to have a PFSense at each side and have the two PFSenses connect to each other and bridge the network, and it would be your, the whole LAN would be as if it was one really big LAN. Um, but since you don't, I'm not entirely sure. So he needs
0: to basically have a box on each side of the VPN that could route the traffic for him and then have him well, so on a the network. P- the
1: PFSense will do that at his
0: house. Yes. It's just a matter of... he needs of, to have something on her end, too, on the mother-in-law's possibly.
1: end.
0: Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't have to be the router.
1: Well, it, like, no, it doesn't have to be the router, right and it might be possible to do it with FreeNAS. You might just search around and see if it's fairly easy to set up yeah. OpenVPN on a actually,
0: he said. He actually, he said the box he's putting over at her house is a FreeBSD machine, not a FreeNAS machine. Oh, did he? Yeah. So the, it's FreeNAS at his house, but it's FreeBSD on the machine downstairs that he's moving no. over. Well, to it's
1: very them. easy to just uh, install OpenVPN from ports and have it connected to your PFSense.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, slam dunk. Good luck, SpazzyC. Jeremy O'Connell writes in. He says, hello, Chris and Alan. I'm back with another PHP FPM question. Brace yourself, Alan. It's my understanding that NGINX with PHP FPM handles load better than Apache with mod PHP. However, I am seeing some cray-cray CPU usage from PHP FPM. At times, the process PHP FM starts using 100% of the CPU. I've turned on catch workers output, so it outputs the error log of NGINX. I'm see- I am not seeing any specific errors, like a bad library, I have checked open connections, and sometimes this happens. There doesn't be, but there doesn't appear to be many. I've run ps aux and he's grep for php-fpm many times, and he sees and he includes the output right here where we've got uh, a few processes running. So anyway, I've read some form threads, but I want to see if you had any ideas tracking down issues where php-fpm spikes to a hundred percent
1: CPU. Thanks for your uh, thoughts. Almost all those instances, it'll be the PHP script that's running that's doing it. Uh, so in the phpfpm.conf, you can enable some extra logging, uh, but there's a setting in there, I forget what it's called, but it basically lets you limit how long a script can run for, and if it runs longer than that, kill it. Uh, there's also, I think, a, a built-in logging for anything that takes a long time. There you go. It's like the, the slow log. So
0: that way track control. it down to which script is causing and it the it tell problem. you which,
1: which script with which input is actually causing it to be slow.
0: Mm-hmm. PHP FPM continues to be difficult for Jeremy, but that but might be one. But it, it's,
1: you know, in the end... You're running the same PHP script in the same PHP process as if it was built into Apache or if it runs as a standalone. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing you were having this problem in, in in Apache, You just it wasn't as easy to see what was happening because it was all bundled inside the Apache process.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah, right, right. Okay. Or
1: Apache was otherwise slowing it down before you got to the point <laughs> of actually being able to use all the CPU for the script. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, all right, Alan, guess what? we got a book review coming into the feedback section here, and it's a book you may have heard of before. Free BSD Master, or uh, it, actually, it's Free BSD Mastery colon, ZFS mm-hmm. <laughs> by Mr. Alan Jude and Michael L or W. Lucas, right? Is it W. Lucas or L. Lucas? Yes, w? Michael W. Lucas. W. Yeah, so uh it looks... To
1: be confused as Michael Lucas without the W, who's a gay porn star.
0: Right, okay, good to keep that straight. So uh, when you go
1: to the URL, you have to be fair. Looks like a pretty it.
0: positive review you got here, Alan. Yep. That's cool. That's cool. ZFSbook.com, is that where I go to grab it? Yep. Very nice. Very cool. That must feel, you know, the other thing I saw was pretty neat is I saw at the uh, Seagull table that there was some FreeBSD Mastery ZFS books on
1: there. Yes, and SSH Mastery and a bunch of the others. Yeah, Uh,
0: yeah, that's pretty neat. Now it's amongst the Mastery books, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) It was
1: was the FreeBSD table, and so Michael Mm -hmm. Lucas brought out his collection of uh, books to show up.
0: Uh, if you want to send an email into the TechSnap program, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We'd love to answer your question next week. And with the uh, feedback all done and the emails and the questions all done, it means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our operatives over on our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story, well, this smells like an Alan Jude find. Fewer IPsec VPN connections at risk from weak Diffie Hellman. Alan, according to ThreshPost. So
1: uh, when we talked about the weak Diffie Hellman, and it said up to 66% of uh, uh, IPsec VPNs were at risk, It turns out maybe they were their method of checking was wrong, in particular uh, when they did the connection and they tried to negotiate. Mm -hmm. When they got a certain error back, they didn't count those servers as being open to the public VPN servers, and they were, but they were ones that didn't accept the bad key.
0: Uh,
1: they just refused the bad key in a slightly different way than some other ones. So the sixty-six percent number might have actually been is is higher than actuality. Okay, Uh,
0: but there are still a lot of VPNs out there that have the problem. I like that nice follow up though. Good to just sort yeah. of uh, uh, touch is, on that.
1: This is a uh, you know, this is the whole point of peer reviewed papers is that when you write a paper and you claim that sixty six percent of all VPNs are vulnerable, somebody else is like, well, somebody's going to peer review method. that. Yeah. This is <laughs> why you have to include the method you used to do the sample, and it's like, here's the problem with your method, and here's I fixed it for you, and here's the actual method.
0: right. Boy, underscore, and that then point. somebody
1: else we like. Whoa, but you forgot to consider this other thing, right? Right.
0: It's an evolving thing, uh, but it keeps yes, getting better and better. It's
1: called science. Science.
0: All right, this is some science for you. British Gas Leak uh, sees 2,400 customer passwords posted online. Not getting a lot of uh, media attention either, but British Gas has written to affected customers to tell them that, while it may not have been a quote-unquote hack, they say, the effect is the same. It somehow managed to leak. Not ha- get hacked, but leak information that uh, found its way onto the internet. Reports have it that 2,399 email addresses and passwords have been leaked online. A package of emails and passwords is a pretty good haul for an online exploiter, particularly the same details if they use those same usernames and passwords for other sites. And then people are noticing online, too, that there's not really a lot of attention getting about this. But, this one uh,
1: appears to be something like they were in a spreadsheet that they accidentally posted on their website. They did something. it themselves. They did it themselves. Or something to, like, yeah, basically this was accidentally exposed them rather than it was hacked.
0: So I didn't know this was still going on, but the GPL enforcement suit against VMware, VMware continues, but in Germany.
1: Hmm. Well, because it hasn't actually started yet. I They're thought, still going through the preliminary motions of yeah, okay. VMware saying, because of this, this, and this, you should just throw this case out. And then the uh, Linux developer, uh, Christoph Hellwig saying, well, actually, this, yeah. this, and this.
0: Okay, that's uh, so. That VMware's
1: words. first one was that this guy doesn't own the copyright on the whole Linux kernel, so he doesn't have the right to sue us for it. And secondly, uh, the V the what's the VMware's thing's called is uh, VM kernel, was
0: it? Yeah, yeah, VMKHL. VMK,
1: yeah. VMK Linux. VMK uh, Linux is an interoperability module that communicates via a stable interface called the VMK API, and so therefore isn't a derivative product. Uh, and Christoph is saying, "Well, my copyright's all over the place, so I have enough of an interest to bring the suit, and that that's not a stable ABI. You're integrating with the kernel, and therefore it's it's a derivative work."
0: Yeah, I don't know. Any, yeah, and you have to rebuild but, that uh, module every time you update your kernel. Yeah. So and
1: so it's obviously not a stable API. Yeah. Uh, basically, VMware is requi- uh is made the filing private so that the software conservancy can't actually publish the details, but they got. Uh, permission to get a high-level overview and uh, have the uh, be able to tell us a little bit about what's going on, just not the details.
0: Hmm. Uh, that came from the uh, software conservancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, all and, right, uh,
1: brings up you know some of the points we saw with uh, uh, the we had a discussion on BSD now that'll come out the week this does um, about HP at a. I forget which Linux conference promote trying to get more people to use the GPL instead of permissive licenses like the Apache Two and BSD license, and it's like, well, if you want to know why companies, uh, why the companies behind like OpenSwitch demanded a permissive license, is because they didn't want to get sued like VMware.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. And to, so, to get a
1: bunch of, to get a whole group of different companies and get all their legal departments to agree on one license, kind of requires having a permissive license. But anyway, moving on.
0: Uh, I didn't really know what t- you thought of this next story. Top German official is infected with a highly advanced spy drogen with ties to the NSA containing almost superhuman engineering. The subtitle reads at ours, the rain malware was found on the official's laptop.
1: Rain malware. I never know about uh, superhuman yeah. engineering.
0: Yeah, now we talked about it a while ago. RAIN is among the most advanced pieces of malware ever discovered with dozens of modules that can be used to customize attacks on targets, in telecommunications, hospitality, energy, airline, and research industries, whatever that is. Uh, Ours is really laying it on thick. They say its technical DNA bears some resemblance to previously discovered state-sponsored malware, including espionage Trojans such as Flame and Dooku.
1: But if we know all those aspects about Flame and Dooku, what would stop someone from writing the same thing into their Trojan? So it doesn't necessarily mean it's that connected. Right. But yeah. it does look like uh it hides in NTFS extended attributes and yep. uh does a rootkit with vmem.sys and uh disp.dll and hides in there really well. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh the uh, yeah boy this yeah. is this is actually a lot of callbacks to previous stories we've done including the Equation Group. Mm. Yep. So it's a it's an interesting read. Uh, so essentially, a lot of the malware we've talked about before was used against a top German official. I guess that's the, that's the quick takeaway of that. Some of the big, heavy stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's just different. It's a lot of different stuff we've talked about all being used in one single case. And all I'm right. sure they're uh,
1: not happy about that because, uh, you know, th- that malware is only useful when people don't know it's out there.
0: Yeah. MySQL server is hacked with malware to perform DDoS attacks. This is yep. from Symantec.
1: So there's a a flaw in older MySQL servers, and if you don't patch, then your machine will be turned into a bot and will be used in denial of service stacks to take out other people.
0: It's kind of obvious at this point. Which will hurt your connection and theirs, so please fix that. (laughs) Yeah, go patch, go patch, please. In other words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Rockwell patches, serious frosty URL pick vulnerability. What the, the, Alan, These headlines are ridiculous. Can you explain to me what this is? I'm sorry. Rock, so, Rockwell, Rockwell patches, serious uh, frosty URL, PLC, oh okay vulnerability.
1: Yeah. All right. So the, in these uh, programmable logic controllers that are industrial control systems uh, they interact with a URL and if you give it a specific frosty URL it will compromise the machine.
0: Okay. Very nice. That's that a nice URL feature.
1: Person, yeah. <laughs> They oh, fixed that. So yeah, hopefully that's a good people patch. But yeah. it's industrial control system, so <clears throat> maybe they'll install the patch in 10 years.
0: <laughs> but I'm bummed. Uh, all right. This is an interesting article that looks at the impact of Netflix's open source software contribution and development. Uh, and I bet you have some interesting stories, probably speaking with some people from there about this.
1: Uh, yeah. So they're mostly just trying to maintain the smallest delta they can to open source projects so that they don't, you know. Where most companies... Uh, you know, when they're building something on top of something like FreeBSD, they'll have a bunch of secret sauce that's specific mm-hmm. to their business that either because it's so specific to them, they the FreeBSD doesn't want it, or because it's their secret sauce, they don't want to give it away. Yeah. But because of the way Netflix's business works, all the stuff they do on FreeBSD, they're they'd rather get it to give it away. So, you know, sometimes that requires them doing a little bit of extra work to make it a little more general and not specific to Netflix so that FreeBSD will even accept it in the first place. Uh, but they also do a lot of other cool stuff. Like we've seen them do a lot of their uh, tools for detecting attacks, and uh, and even just frameworks for building UIs and all kinds of basically yeah. everything that's not really to do with movies. Netflix just gives away because why not?
0: Yeah, I like. I really like that. The, there's, there's certain companies out there like Netflix where they're not losing any competitiveness by contributing like this, and so they just go all out and put some really good stuff out there.
1: Well, uh, and because. When you, they're not just dumping it out there like some companies do either. They're maintaining it. And so then when people have fixes, they come back and everybody benefits. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. It's, it's important that it's both ways, right? It's, lots of companies do things where they'll open source something by just like dumping the version that is out there over the wall. And then maybe a year later, they dump a newer version. But it's different when they actually you know, accept contributions back from other people and stuff.
0: So I was complaining about uh, headlines. <laughs> this next one from uh, Dark Matters: uh, "See, sweet pride, slam dunks hard before the checkbook." <laughs> That's come on, come on, might come on, right? Yeah, okay. So
1: <laughs> well, this one basically that uh, you know the the pride of the CEO can sometimes get in the way of cybersecurity, and you know a great example they they're talking about the talk one where you know. The first, the first headline we see is from the TalkTalk Talk CEO saying our cybersecurity is heads and shoulders above all of our competitors. Right. We're awesome, blah, blah. And then the next day, it's uh, we had no legal obligation to encrypt that data, so we didn't. You know, we're not going to do security unless we're regulated to do so.
0: We've done, like, we've done the minimum viable security.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's like, well, are you head and shoulders above everybody, and that's what your claim to fame is, or are you half-assing it because you're not required to do anything else? Right. You yeah. kind of got to make up your mind. You can you can't you can't be doing both at the same time.
0: Oh, yeah, and then damage control. Get your experience coverage and you're good to mm-hmm. go. Yeah. Okay.
1: So this one's got a video. You you should play
0: Oh, it does? Oh, okay. Okay, I will. I will. So this uh, one's a, a new
1: technology that allows attackers to
0: steal your face. Your face. Dun, dun, dun. All right. So, here is that this this one the uh, YouTube there's two videos.
1: The, 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 set, the lower one.
0: Okay. So we got... Uh, it is no. uh, two people, and then between them are two computer monitors. I'm going to hit play. This is real-time expression transfer for facial reenactment. Full screen. Full screen. Ah. Full you screen. We present a real-time method for photorealistic transfer of facial expressions from a source actor here on the right to a target actor on the left.
1: Notice how the guy in the white shirt's mouth isn't moving in reality, but... His image... The, the prototype
0: the, system shown here only needs one consumer-grade PC and a consumer and mouth, depth camera for each actor. And it's animating the mouth yes. based so on the real this, input from a real human over a webcam.
1: With, with this, I could do an episode of TechSnap where the when I talk, your mouth The real-time capability moves, of our approach <laughs> paves the <way> for a <laughs> now,
0: of now I see where you're going. Now I see where you're going. Okay, okay, all right. That's
1: I, I could do a Skype call where I was you.
0: You would basically just have to... Uh, uh, you. But people would have to get past the fact that we have the same voice. Then, other than yes. that, yeah.
1: But imagine you know all the phones that have unlocked with your face.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I, also, I,
1: just you know, if somebody only knows me from my face, uh, someone could easily pretend to be me in a, on a Skype call or, or podcast or whatever.
0: Yeah, this is going to be the uh, <clears throat> this is going to be the automation cur- of the currently podcast. Currently, the
1: giveaway. Host. Uh, if you keep watching the video, currently the giveaway is the teeth. They, they use fake I, teeth. I did actually
0: kind of I did kind of look at that. Uh, yeah. It's like about halfway through. Yeah. A little bit further in. Uh, you could actually see it a little bit in one. They actually
1: of, have a demonstration of the fake teeth further in somewhere. Okay. There, let me see.
0: They had also, when, when uh, she smiled or when he smiled, yeah. uh, you could see the teeth and it, it looked.
1: And the teeth are too perfect because they're just a computer model. Yeah. But yeah I, don't, there. I don't know. Right there. A little bit further. <laughs> there. There's the fake teeth at the bottom. Like they're like prototypical fake teeth.
0: Yeah. 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 That would be the big downside, but they could work on that.
1: Exactly. Huh. Uh, and with enough profile of the original person, you could have their real teeth.
0: This is an interesting, uh, this is a really interesting post.
1: Now, they're doing this live, but then imagine doing this with just, uh, you know, like at the top, just if you compiled all the Facebook photos of a person that you were targeting, then you could fairly easily probably assume their face
0: yeah or imagine what you could do for public pu- public officials with like mm-hmm. a, a news statement who needs obama to actually say anything anymore just get mm-hmm. a voice actor mm-hmm. uh so uh huh so this is a, from kaspersky labs and uh you can find a link like all this stuff in the uh, show is no, well, just,
1: just highlighting there is the university research but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. but i that mean that's the a cool project to work on a university actually
0: yeah it is all right Alan. the next uh roundup item is uh it's a tweet U.S. officials are concerned about Russia and how close they are to underwater cables.
1: Yeah, so there's like this Russian ship just kind of floating around right where some of the undersea cables are. And they're like, are they cutting our undersea cables to attack us or are they wiretapping them?
0: That'd be uh, a thing, wouldn't it?
1: And then, then it's like, how about let's not worry about it and just encrypt the shit.
0: <laughs> oh, they think, yeah, okay, yeah if, yeah.
1: if everything going over the cable is encrypted so that the U.S. couldn't read it. And oh. also Russia
0: couldn't read it. Oh, that's interesting.
1: But because you know, you're passing these laws saying, hey, people shouldn't encrypt stuff so that we can read it, then you have this problem.
0: I, I got, you know, it's funny because Fox was reporting not that they were going to tap the wires, but that they were going to uh, just cut them to cause economic chaos. Yes, that, that, that's one of the two concerns. Yeah. So that's interesting. But if
1: they're going to do that, they probably could do it much quicker. <laughs>
0: I don't really think they'd want or to just do like that.
1: Drive by, drag the anchor.
0: I don't think they'd really want to do that. It doesn't seem, I don't think that's actually going to, my bet, not going It'd be
1: happen. pretty obvious what happened. Yeah, it
0: would be pretty obvious. All well, right. Like,
1: I guess you could set it like a mind to go off like a year later or something or a month later.
0: I know it was close to all of our hearts, but we got to talk about TrueCrypt and there's a critical vulnerability. Dun, dun, dun.
1: Although it's not in the encryption, right? The encryption's been audited. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But the actual software itself has a a privilege escalation bug which could allow an attacker to be like the system privileges on your Windows machine. And once they had that, then they could just uh, capture your passphrase and be able to decrypt or just wait until you've mounted it and then steal your files.
0: This is another find by Google's uh, Project Zero team. Mm So, uh, that's cool. That's really cool. Uh, and
1: uh, Veracrypt, one of the continuations of the open source TrueCrypt, has, yes. uh, apparently has version 1.15 out, which apparently fixes this.
0: Yes, CVE-2015-7359 and CVE-2015-7358. There you go. And good, uh, another, another, uh, another uh, tip of the hat to Google's uh, Project Zero team, who's uh, mm. really knocking them out. Okay, Alan, so this next one comes from Netcraft. U.S. Military Cybersecurity fails to make the grade.
1: Yes. So back in like 2014, the uh, Certificate Authority slash Browser Forum said that, hey, we'll not issue any more SHA-1 certificates. Everything will be SHA-256 or better. Uh, It turns out the U.S. DOD and military, which have their own certificate authority, are still issuing crappy certificates.
0: (laughs) Surprise. Oh. So uh, really, uh, it's another example of you say and one and thing. Basically,
1: now that Chrome doesn't like SHA one certificates and started issuing the warnings about them, the they'll probably get more and more complaints, and hopefully we'll fix it.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll fix it. Yeah, yeah I won't. You know what? I won't it, even give them it a hard makes time. It I'm sure more, they will. more
1: closer to being spoofable, and that's bad.
0: Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is. And uh, I, I think uh, I think it's probably a good thing that browsers are being more aggressive about calling this stuff out. Um, and also, uh, you know, also I think people are getting, a, uh, I think average consumers are getting a little more uh, aware of what's HTTPS versus not. I don't know if they understand, but I think they understand secure and not secure. Uh, well,
1: so that's, people seeing the lock thinking the mm-hmm, website meant it was mm-hmm. legitimate was a big problem. Right. right? Where anybody can buy an SSO's different for $9 and yeah. run a site that takes your money, doesn't send you anything. Was yeah. kind of an issue, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, so all those links, jupyterbroadcasting.com. Find TechSnap239, scroll down after the download links, you'll see links to everything Alan talked about. We'd love to get your emails, please go to the contact page on our site, Or uh, email us directly, textnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or the subreddit. Subreddit's also a great place to submit your own stories for the roundup. And sometimes we even bump them up to the main section if they're really meaty and need some analysis. So join us live. JBLive.tv is where you watch it. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar is where you get it converted to your local time zone. Uh, We do the show on Thursdays. So uh, you can find it there. Alan, is there anything else we want to cover this week? Uh, I don't think this is about it. All right, everybody. Well, I think that will wrap us up. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.